This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, March 14th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. How governments, local, state, and federal, surveil Americans should be a matter of grave concern. And yet so much of this surveillance is done with little oversight, let alone a judicial warrant. Barry Friedman is author of the new book, Unwarranted, Policing Without Permission. We spoke last week. In Compton, California, the police were approached by a private company that did aerial surveillance, and they thought it was a great idea, so they tried it out. And the city was subjected to aerial surveillance over a period of time until people found out about it. And they were very angry to know that they were being spied upon without their knowing about it. So who authorized all this? No one. And in fact, the public information officer for the department said a remarkable thing. He said, we knew that people kind of don't like this big brother being spied on things, so we decided to keep it hush-hush so they wouldn't know. Hard to imagine another government official outside of policing saying that. At the local level, and we can get to the other stuff uh, uh, in a little bit, but how pervasive is surveillance without... Uh, warrant or suspicion? Extremely pervasive. I think that the mode of policing has moved to surveillance without warrant or suspicion. Uh, You have CCTV cameras looking down on you from almost everywhere. The NSA is collecting your data in bulk. Uh, We don't know how much of it goes on or exactly when. We know that there are stingrays being used and perhaps being used to suck in the phone numbers of anybody attending certain protests. It's become the mode, which is that instead of going after bad guys, we just keep everybody under watch and look for trouble before it happens. And even at the state level and local level, we have the federal government that has enabled a lot of this by distributing stingray technology to uh, police agencies at the state and local level. Yeah, so stingrays, which are mobile cell site simulators, they trick your cell phone into thinking that it's a cell tower and then the simulator can figure out where your cell phone is. That technology was distributed by the federal government, sometimes with federal funding, but always with a requirement that the existence of this technology be kept completely secret. And so law enforcement agencies used stingrays over a long period of time. They either didn't seek court orders that they might ought to have had, or they lied about the technology that they were using, or prosecutions were dismissed because the technology was about to come out. I believe at least one judge in one case where the, the fact of a stingray was about to be revealed said, well, you don't have a non-disclosure agreement with me. Ah, I hadn't heard that story, but I think that all judges should have taken that perspective. It's, it, I mean, it's, I find it remarkable, this idea that there would be an agreement that actually required of law enforcement that it be disingenuous with judges. Okay, so moving on to federal surveillance, uh, this is far more widespread than even most Americans probably believe it is in in the wake of the the Snowden leaks. It's very difficult to know. I mean, that's the problem. We we can't supervise or uh, weigh in about things that we don't even know about. And uh, I would be the first to recognize that law enforcement is different than other government functions, that there are sometimes needs for certain kinds of secrecy. Uh, but beyond that, I think that we've made a fetish of secrecy and we need to get information out to folks so they can know what the government's doing and then, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down on it. What can be done in the short run to sort of rein in uh, this this kind of abuse, both at the federal and uh, state and local level. Obviously, warrant requirements uh, are a step, but 
you would have to know that this surveillance is even going on in order to assert your own rights of a warrantless search. Right. So, you know, the subtitle of my book is Policing Without Permission. And there are two forms of permission if you stop and think about it. One is warrants, which are obtained in advance of law enforcement activity. But the other form of permission is democratic say-so in one fashion or another. And there are lots of them at the state and local levels. I think what we have to do is convey the message clearly as a society that that's the expectation. And that's a big culture shift because it's not what we've really ever done in this country. With respect to uh, the NSA uh, and FBI surveillance, there there are different standards that apply to uh, the FBI surveillance and intelligence agency surveillance. Well, ostensibly there are. I think this is something we're super confused about. So there was a period of time in this country when there had been something erected called the wall, which was supposed to keep foreign intelligence gathering and criminal investigations, domestic criminal investigations separate. And we came to realize after 9-11 that that was a mistake. And it was always a mistake. I mean, in, if if foreign intelligence folks get word that there's something happening domestically, they ought to let domestic officials know, no doubt about that. The bigger question, and the one we don't focus on enough, though there's a statutory basis, is if you're a U.S. person, then basic constitutional rules apply. If you're either a citizen or somebody living in the country lawfully, then the Constitution requires complied with, and it's not the same abroad. So one of the big issues right now is is what to do about Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which is coming up for renewal in December. And one of the things that goes on under FISA is that the government is conducting surveillance on foreign folks, and they quote-unquote incidentally come upon information from a uh, U.S. persons. And they're allowed to keep it, retain it, pass it on to the FBI. The FBI can search it. That can't be right. I mean, at some point, if law enforcement is, I'm sorry, if uh, the NSA is tracking somebody abroad and they realize that there's a U.S. person involved, that's the time to get a warrant and then continue that surveillance if it needs to continue. But you need that permission up front. How effective is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act uh, at protecting Americans' privacy? Well, I think there are two separate problems. One is the one I just mentioned, which is that even if one is applying the law as it seems to be written, there may be just a huge loophole that that the government can currently walk through and that I think needs to be plugged. The second is that you have to think about questions that come to the foreign intelligence court as you know, macro questions uh, as questions of policy that should not be answered by a court that operates in secret without adequate advocacy from both sides. So I think this is somewhere we've gone completely off the rails. That court was created to operate in secret to grant warrants for foreign intelligence. And you can understand why every bit of what I just said might make sense. But when it moved from granting very specific warrants, what we all think of as a warrant to go after a particular suspect, to authorizing things like bulk data collection of all Americans, then everything went completely off the rails that that court even thought that it had jurisdiction to deal with that and could deal with it in secret. And it flips the burden of proof. Well, I mean, I guess it, it actually does something more profound in a way, which is that, you know, there's a foreign intelligence court, appellate court, and questions come up that are big questions, and they don't tend to then move to the Supreme Court of the United States. So for all intents and purposes, this appellate body, comprised of shifting judges from around the country, decides mega 
policy questions, legal questions, but involving huge questions of policy. And that should never be happening except in an open courtroom of some sort with advocates from both sides and public attention. So, and, and this is, as I noted earlier, this is especially bad uh, given that in so many cases of having your rights violated by the government, you have the ability and, in fact, relevant knowledge in order to assert that your rights have been violated. What recourse do people have if they've been surveilled and uh, don't know about it? Yeah, so this is a terrific question. I mean, the, f the first problem, as you point out, is that you can't complain about what you don't know. And of course, we've had government officials say, well, if you don't know, there's no harm to you. But I, you know, I'm not sure that's how I would come to understand somebody looking through a hole that I didn't know about in the wall into my bedroom all the time. I wouldn't think that I hadn't been harmed. I'd be appalled once I knew. Uh, but then, you know, the other part of it is. Uh, that the Supreme Court has just been terrible in terms of granting access to the courts for people who complain that their rights are being violated under circumstances where we don't have all the information. So the Supreme Court said, you know, you can't prove that your phone's being tapped here or that your metadata is being collected, so you can't bring suit. Well, there was plenty of evidence that that was going on, and we ought to be able to litigate that question. In uh, at least one recent case in which the, the Supreme Court ruled on a tracking device placed on a, a man's vehicle, they ruled that they needed a warrant. Uh, Justice Sotomayor went further and talked about the third party doctrine. How important is it that we, uh, as a you know, as a legal matter, look very closely at the coherence of the third party doctrine? Yeah, it's essential. The third party doctrine says if the government wants information about you that you've given to your tax accountant, to your bank, to your internet provider, they can just go get it with a subpoena that they write out themselves. No warrant needed, no probable cause, thanks. And that doctrine may well not have made sense at the time that it was adopted, but it had relatively limited usage. Today, everything about us is sitting in the hands of a third party, everything private and intimate. And the idea that the government can get that information without uh, probable cause and a warrant is unfathomable. But part of the problem that we have is that we have a political lockdown, which is that Congress is just frozen on these issues. It's under attack from the tech industries and from uh, consumers and from the government on the other side. And it's unable to move. And in the face of that, the courts just keep you know, doing what they will with the doctrine. And one of the things I suggest in the book is the courts should just put a halt to it and just say, until Congress makes clear what the rules are here in a very different world, then you know, the government's, we're just going to assume warrants and probable cause are what are needed. What do you tell people about securing their own privacy? I mean, to, to basically opt out of the system of surveillance? You know, I, I I am not an expert here. I watch a lot of people who are experts, and they have a lot of fancy things that they tell us that we should do, that we should be worrying about end-to-end -end encryption. But then I meet with some dismay the news that we just got from WikiLeaks that you know the CIA has been working on getting past that encryption on our iPhones and our Androids. And so, you know, if this is the game, I'm not sure any of us can individually win it. And what we need to do is, as a society, decide what the rules ought to be. That's a complicated question. There's balance there between security and privacy, and we should have that conversation. We should decide what the rules are, and we should make it perfectly clear that they are to be followed and that government officials who do not follow them will suffer consequences. If you look at uh, how prosecutors are treated when they engage in wrongdoing, that's not a whole lot. What you say is not a whole lot of comfort. It varies from judge to judge. 
but I think you're generally right. We have, uh, you know, another example of this are the immunity doctrines, which basically say to law enforcement officials, uh, you know, unless there's been a case that looks just like this in the past where we've said it's not okay, you're fine. And so I document in, in one chapter in the book how, uh, you know, strip searches of school children go on and on and on and on, and courts keep finding that. You know, gosh, that is a constitutional violation, but heck, you just didn't know. And you wonder, well, how many cases did it take before you knew that that was something that should not be happening? And so uh, I understand, and I should actually back up and say I've you know started an organization called The Policing Project, and we spend our days working closely with some truly amazing people and law enforcement people to whom I trust my life and my safety and that of my family and my young children. Uh, but they're also, you know, they get that there are rules. Where we've been off the rails again is that we aren't being clear about what the rules should be. If we were clear about what the rules should be, if we said, look, this is what we want and this is what we don't want, and if we need to do something we're not doing now, just come to us and talk to us about it, then I think we would just see a completely different pattern of behavior. Barry Friedman is author of Unwarranted, Policing Without Permission, Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.